Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 8th of October 2023, 9.30 service. Tim Davis speaking on Psalm 5. Uh, yeah, we've done Psalms 1 to 4, only 146 more to go. Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, when you might ask someone to describe what type of book Psalms is, what type of literature it is in the Bible, what genre of literature in the book, um, the book of Psalms, you know, you, the answer you usually get is it's poetry. It goes with the poetic um, books. And in the current preaching program, we've referred to Psalms as a remarkable collection of very different ancient songs. You know, it's, it's, it's like the hymn book of the Bible. But I think the Psalms are also just much more than that. They're not just something to be read or sung reverently each Sunday in church. They're a tool for encountering God in our lives. It's in the Bible, the God-inspired, holy Bible, that we encounter God most readily. The Psalms are some of the most descriptive parts of the Bible for telling us about God. They're written by people who opened up their hearts to tell us of the amazing things God had done in their lives. They are prayers to God in times of trouble, cries for help. They are honest accounts of acknowledging our failings and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And Psalm 5 is, like many of the Psalms, it's a prayer, a solemn address to God at a time when the author, King David, or wasn't king at the time, was in great distress due to his enemies. It's a situation that David found himself in at many points of his life. And so many of the Psalms bear the same theme, this recurring theme. But that doesn't mean there isn't plenty to learn from each of them in this particular psalm, Psalm 5, and which can still challenge us today. The um, psalm starts off with this cry of lament, petitioning God to hear and to help. But it's not a whine, it's not David going, why is this happening to me? Nor is it a demand, like, God, do something now. It's not a wallowing lament of depression either, which some of the Psalms can sound like. Feelings of despair and helplessness, desolation, goth Psalms, you might call them. Uh, And Psalm 6, which we're actually looking at in two weeks' time, is kind of a classic example of just how far the psalmist goes to describing the misery that they're in. Interestingly, the introduction to this psalm, which uh, Jamie included in his reading, great for that, it says this, for the director of music, for pipes, a psalm of David. Uh, I was wondering if I could you know, not set the talk, but perhaps at least the reading uh, to music, some pipe music. Uh, we did away with our old pipe organ when we refurbished the church, but I thought you know, maybe some good old-fashioned bagpipes wailing, as Jamie's doing the reading, would have been quite good, adding to that sense of angst and despair of David. Uh, but of course, that psalm is not really about the angst and despair. No, it is a cry for help. But straight away, there's something in the psalm, something striking and important about the way David speaks through the psalm. He begins thus, Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. David asks God to listen to his cry. 
but he acknowledges who God is straight away. God is his king and his God. David gives us the model for how to bring our sufferings before God in prayer. He doesn't whine or demand answers like an impatient child. He knows who he's talking to and gives the honor and respect that is due. And how he delivers his petition to God, I think is also really interesting and a great example for us. He gets up in the morning and he's still got his problems in his life. But the first thing he does is goes to talk to God and bring his problems to him. He says, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. Some of us may find, you know, when we're in that low point in our lives, which doesn't just happen in cycles, the hardest thing can sometimes be to bother getting up in the morning, to think about having to deal with the world, which seems to be causing us nothing but grief and problems. And so it's just easier, it feels, to stay where we are, not face the world and our problems. Because at least we can't exacerbate them if we don't do anything beyond just staying in the perceived comfort of our bed, our sofa, our living room, just lounging around perhaps. And David doesn't do that. He says, in the morning I lay my requests before you and I wait. I don't ignore what's going wrong, but I don't demand an instant response, instant relief to my troubles either. I wait. And it's in the waiting that we allow ourselves time to think more on God, to talk more to God, and to listen and meditate on him. When we have things in our life that are worrying and troubling us, one of the best things we could possibly do is you know, make a list of them. And then take a look at your list and ask yourself, are any of these people or these events under my control? And if so, what can I do to change them? And if you can change them, do it and get them off your list. And if you can't, the things that remain, we give those to God. No one ever changed anything simply by worrying about it. And here David takes decisive action to deal with his troubles. So far, so good. And then we come to the cause of David's lament. People. Or more precisely, people who are trying to harm him, his enemies. And he describes them as such. He says, for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful Lord detest. So often, this is what fills David's psalms of lament, his prayers, his petitions to God for help. This anger. It's like a mini discourse on the righteous versus the wicked. Those whom God favours and those whom he despises. And when I first read psalm 5 in preparation for this talk i started having a bit of a problem with these words david often writes in the psalms about how terrible his enemies are and how god punishes them whilst rewarding and blessing the righteous and he very much seems to regard himself as a part of the latter group yet with the knowledge of what's to come later on in david's life 
we know that he is far from righteous himself and engages in absolutely terrible behavior, murder, adultery. And so reading his words here, it just feels to me a little bit kind of pious and judgmental diatribe, completely lacking in his own self-awareness. See how bad these people are, but I'm not like them. But that's not to say his words aren't valid. God is not pleased with wickedness. And in this world, there is so much of it. David implores God to judge the wicked accordingly and impose the um, just punishment on them. David sees himself as opposite of these wicked enemies. He is one of the righteous. And reading through this psalm, I found myself thinking how dreadfully hypocritical and blind to his own faults David is. Now, of course, later on in the Psalms, David is much more self-reflecting, acknowledging of his um, own faults. But he seems to spend so much time, so many verses in this very relatively short psalm, criticizing others and analyzing what it is they do wrong. But I thought I wanted a balance. I wanted to read about the qualities that make someone righteous rather than just David seemingly bigging himself up. It says, but I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. Oh, good for you, David. Aren't you great? Except, when we look at that verse a second time, we see that it's not David that's great. He does actually, in fact, hit the nail on the head when it comes to identifying what makes a righteous person. But by your great love, it's not anything we can do. It's something only God can do. We are made righteous through God's great love, not by our own great endeavors. Righteousness is a theme which crops up a lot in the Psalms. It's the quality of being right in the eyes of God, in what we do what we think, what we say, how we act. Righteousness is based on God's standard. And therefore, we will always fall short of that standard. But the forgiveness of sins through faith and the willingness and desire to obey God as king of our lives is what leads us to be called a righteous people. Reading a psalm like this can tell us more than we might think about our own relationship with God. We could be surrounded by people who are not pleasant to be around, people who are unkind, thoughtless, selfish, greedy, unwilling to listen to others. And we might see ourselves as set apart from them, more worthy than them, simply because we're Christians. But righteousness is not an automatic quality of being a Christian. It's only receivable through God's love and his forgiveness of our sins. Psalms like this one, like Psalm 5, which we might turn to when we're feeling in despair or persecuted or treated unfairly, bring a challenge to live a righteous life. One that acknowledges that we are no more worthy than the most wicked people around us but that we also have hope in salvation 
from and through God our Father. By the end of the psalm, David brings together the three main sort of characters that feature in his prayer. He asks God to lead him in righteousness and to make straight the way before him. He asks God to punish the wicked and then concludes with a sense of peace, as it were, that God does protect his people. He writes his wonderful words. says, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. It's joyful. It's reassurance. And perhaps without realizing it, I think David's prayer, this psalm, almost feels like it's answered itself by the time he's gotten to the end of the psalm. He didn't just pray, he spent time waiting on God, meditating on God. And he comes to this realization that refuge and joy and protection, the things he is desperately asking for, are found in God. From out of the despair, he finds hope and assurance. I was reading that I was particularly found myself looking at the words at the end of verse 11, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. It's the first occasion in the book of Psalms that we have this concept of the name of God, the name of the Lord. And we often hear this phrase being used a lot in the Bible, don't we, and in songs and in worship. People call on the name of the Lord. We trust in your name, O God, your powerful name. And as I was writing this talk, I wanted to kind of see if I could find out more about what is this theological concept of the name of the Lord? It seemed to me that it must be something revelatory rather than just a simple bit of you know, theological language that we just use without really knowing what we mean by it. And so I looked in Bible commentaries to see if there's anything profound about calling on the name of the Lord and found nothing. And so I reread Psalm 5 and saw the answer was right there at the start. What does it mean to call on God's name? But it's exactly what David did at the start of the psalm. It's what we do when we pray, when we address God, our Lord, our King, our God. In our sorrow, pain and distress, we call out to him for help. We give thanks to him with grateful hearts. We praise him with joyful minds and loud, happy voices. How the psalmists, how we, address God when we call on his name tells us something of the nature of God as we acknowledge his greatness and his sovereignty over our lives. Our God, the God, is not a God who does this. He is God. Don't say my God is a God who is like this or does this as if he's one of many. We say God is is he is God who is a prayer hearing God a caring God just God powerful God creator God forgiving God gracious God loving God God is love
The Psalms are perhaps one of the best ways of preparing ourselves when we want to talk to God. When you feel the need to pray to God, why not read a psalm first, perhaps to inspire you? It can be a really eye-opening experience. Maybe seek guidance on a particular psalm that you might want to read in a particular time of your life or feeling that you're in. Because the psalms are a tool like no other. And if I could encourage you to do one thing, it would be to really use them to encounter God more. Maybe you know, today when you get home, take a moment to read a psalm. It could be this one. It could be any of the ones we've looked at over the course of this preaching program. Or it could be a completely different one. But I'd say read the psalm and read it for yourself, like I did for the first time when I read Psalm 5 of this talk. Now, without seeking guidance from anyone telling you what it's about, maybe a guidance in the type of psalm to read, but don't necessarily read it with a concordance or commentary. Read it for yourself and ask what is this telling me about God? How am I encountering God in this wonderful part of the Bible? And then use that psalm to encounter God in your own personal way through prayer.